0: Freedom. Take back your freedom!
1: Hey guys, welcome to Freelance for Real. It's episode Take 10. Holy crap, we made it to the double digits. That means we're a real podcast. Uh, I'm Mike Sorg. Uh, the, uh, the, I, I do podcasty things. And with me, as usual, from uh, Baltimore, Maryland, is Mr. Kanaki. How you doing?
0: Hey, I'm doing good. I'm doing a little swelteringly hot. How about you?
1: Uh, you know, a little milder here, a little milder. Now, now we've, we've, uh, we've hit the podcasting don't of talking about the weather. Uh. But it's great. Um, Of course, this is Freelance for Real, where we talk about the trouble we get into being freelancers. Um, You can check us out live. We record this every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern. I apologize for not putting Eastern on on the Twitter for the one that uh, uh, added us earlier today. Sorry, folks. Yeah, Yeah, sorry about that. I ran out of characters, I think. Uh, And we're at live.sorgatronmedia.com. You can Twitter us uh, and tell us when we don't use our proper uh, timing at Freelance, the number four, real. And, uh, you can also email us at freelanceforreal at And, uh, you find us on iTunes and Mediafly. Uh, just do a quick search. You'll find us real easy. Leave some comments, subscribe to us, everything you need to do. Now, this week, uh, we're kind of, uh, kind of back-to-back programmers going on here. Uh, Steve Klavnik is joining us. And according to his Twitter profile, <coughs> he is a software craftsman, Ruby hero, and aspiring digital humanities scholar. How are you doing this week?
2: Good. How are you guys?
1: All right, all right. Uh, can you ex- can you explain a little bit of what you do and and how you've uh, how you came up with that title on Twitter? Yeah, <laughs> it's uh,
2: it's complicated. It's funny. The more uh, the more time I get, the more varied things I get into, and the uh, the more complicated my my Twitter uh, summary has to be. But at least it makes me be succinct. So the three big parts: software craftsman. I uh, write software. I care a lot about software, and I care a lot about writing software well. Um, Ruby Hero, I mostly code in Ruby, and I won an award called the Ruby Hero Award uh, this year for, I think it says something like, outstanding community service to the Ruby community. So I care a lot about Ruby and its community and web programming and non-web programming Ruby, all that stuff. Aspiring digital humanities scholar, I got accepted to go to Pitt to get a master's in English composition, which is like totally off the wall, except for whenever you remember that programming languages are still languages. So uh, I want to do work blending software and literature and all that kind of stuff. And so those are sort of the three, three big uh, big parts of what I do, I guess you could say.
0: That's a fascinating overlap, Steve. Thank you. I try. <laughs> so, now, I'm going to guess that only one of those is currently what pays the bills? I mean, if you
2: consider that the first two are kind of overlapping, the overlap of the first two is what pays the bills, yes. Gotcha. Um, and so
0: the, the humanities thing is going to be your altruistic giving back to
2: society. Uh, yeah, and also my own personal uh, enjoyment of you know reading crazy books and arguing about it with uh, professors. You know, that's like a an intellectual like hobby. I guess it's a good excuse to, uh, you know, bust out crazy books I've never read before. So,
0: that's cool. I look forward to reading like the first New York Times bestseller that's written in, like, some sort of uh, code structure. You know, because there have been like uh, bestsellers written as though they were letters pen paled back and forth to each other or emails. Where's one that's been written like it's, you know, C?
2: So, I mean, I think one of the problems with doing something like that is that uh, I don't know if the New York Times bestseller list is the right venue for work done in that way. So, this sort of (laughs) harkens back to the whole like hypertext thing that the web is originally supposed to be, right? Like, if you're going to write a story that's programming, it's inherently non linear. And so, uh, I think that it would be difficult to get that into a book necessarily. Although, who knows? You know, I don't know. Maybe somebody will do it uh, effectively. But uh, it would be it would be sweet. I would read it.
0: You might write it for all we know by the time you. Yeah,
2: know. that's also true. I might end up writing it. <laughs> by the so, way, uh, I, oh, go ahead, I,
1: I, While while we're doing this, I, I'm checking out your website. Following from the Twitter I just read, um, I, I love your design here. The, it's this for those don't don't know go to steveflabnick.com and it's very uh command line i guess you could say
2: yep that's the idea i uh i i got the idea because i can't do web design Mm -hmm. it's like the only part of the stack that i'm not able to do i got the business side i got the the back-end programming i even know the front-end programming but doing the actual design is my uh my Achilles heel. So I thought, what could I do for a personal website that would look good? That's doesn't have to do with design at all. And I was like, well, I do this command line stuff all the time. So I sort of built a command line inspired personal website. And, so,
1: and, and so what are you, what are you using to build this? That, uh, what languages people might be familiar with?
2: mean, this is just straight up HTML with a teeny little bit. It's like four lines of JavaScript to make the cursor blink. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and I guess there's a jQuery thing actually too, like a plugin that makes the, uh, that makes it slide like that. So, But just straight up HTML, nothing nothing crazy server-side or anything.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Sorry, I'm stopping my dog from licking himself while you're talking, Steve. It's not you. <laughs> it's him.
1: This is a classy yeah. podcast.
0: Classy. It, it really is. Yeah. Classy. <laughs> you could edit that out.
1: Mike. I just wanted to... Or I could not.
0: That's true. Um, Alright, so let's talk about coding here because last week we had uh, Scott Conley on the show talking about it from a very different perspective, I think, than what Steve brings to the table. Uh, a lot of what Scott does is um, uh, consulting, a lot of what he does is like project-based, and I feel as though a lot of what he does is create code or oversee code or fix code and then send that project back to the client and cash the check and move on to the next job, and I wonder how does that differ from your approach, Steve, and, and your relationships with clients? So the the
2: biggest thing I guess is that I do do stuff like that, but since I am sort of uh, I have a little bit of an unusual take on this, that that's a little too normal. So uh, <laughs> my last contract, for example, was with uh, a company here in Pittsburgh. and basically they are building a new product in Ruby, but they don't have a lot of in-house experience. And so my job was sort of to work there like an employee. So it was more of a consulting, like nine to five kind of job. But um pair program with them and help uh oversee all the Ruby code that their you know people were writing to and teach them like idioms and the way that you know Ruby should be written and sort of let some of my knowledge rub off, I guess. So it's not just programming. I did a lot of actual coding work, but um a lot of it was also sort of had a teaching element or like a mentoring element to it as well. And so uh I tend to take jobs that are like that in nature,
0: I guess you could say. So you're at the point now where you're looking for not just creating an end result, but also developing like a mentorship with the people that you're working with for the purpose of of fostering future communications or because you actually like the experience of of giving back?
2: Well, so one of the things with this whole code is literature um, thing is that literature is written for an audience. And the problem is that programs are written for multiple audiences at the same time. I wrote a blog post about this uh, that goes into a little more detail, but basically, you have to write code like if you're writing a, if you're writing a blog post, you know who's reading your blog, so you can write for them, and it doesn't matter if you know somebody say you have a, this freelance podcast. If you had a blog going along with it, you wouldn't be writing about uh, nuclear reactors, for example, because your audience doesn't care about that; they care about freelancing, right? So you can target your message. The problem with programming is you inherently have at least two audiences. You have the computer and you have the other people you're working with. Um, and I would also say you have yourself as well, like the later you, but that's a, that's a slight divergence. But the point is, you have these two audiences and they both care about different things. So it's harder to compose software than it is to compose writing in a lot of ways, I think, because of this like audience issue. So I enjoy like thinking about that as a problem. Basically, I've been programming long enough now that the actual act of programming isn't even really that interesting to me. It's the social things around programming and the fact that we don't really know how to write code that well. I mean, the, the discipline is super new and you know, we, we have sort of best practices, but it's, it's sort of like building bridges in the middle ages, right? Like you build bridges, most of them work, some of them fall apart and you don't really like, it's not like today where we know, you know, we can do modeling to see if the bridge works before it actually ends up working and all that kind of thing. So, um, so the, the stuff around code is what, what interests me more than even necessarily like programming directly. Um, so yes, I think that roundabout kind of answered your question. I enjoy the mentorship aspect. I enjoy thinking about the social sides of programming and sort of working on those kinds of issues, I guess.
0: Hello. You were, that that answer was so good, Steve, that you, you <laughs> literally froze my computer and shoved we, me out of the room. Good job. We made the <laughs> same joke when, when you were gone. That's exactly what I said, too. <laughs> great minds, folks. Great minds. Exactly. Cool. Am I, am I back? Am yes, I safe? Yes, you are back. You're good. All right. Let's presume nothing happened and moved on. Exactly. Um, okay. So you're big into the mentorship. You're big into the relationship sides of things. Uh, is when you're looking for prospective projects, then, it, how do you factor that into the bidding process? Like, or are you not bidding for projects at all? Are you at the state right now where you're ju- you have a flat fee, and when people want the work of Steve Klabnik, which includes mentorship, they pay him a flat fee?
2: so the the deal right now mostly is that uh, I am having people call me. I'm not calling them. And so uh, I actually I read a blog post a long time ago that really resonated with me. Something about uh, engineers don't like to negotiate, and I, I feel like a lot of a lot of engineers don't like to negotiate salaries. And I definitely am that way. So I tend to generally uh, pitch something that seems appropriate. Usually, I'm still doing work on kind of an hourly basis, um, or at least getting paid on an hourly basis, because uh, on bigger projects it still lets me be flexible. Um, but so I usually pitch an hourly wage, and it's usually pretty close to whatever they were thinking. And so it just sort of works out with after a little bit of negotiation. Um, but there's not a whole lot of, u- usually people are calling me, I'm not bidding against other people, or, you know, going out and finding work. Uh, y- usually it's the other way around. Um, but well, and right I, I do a thing, lot of speaking as you were telling us so right like before this, we started this recording. Thing, what? Oh, sorry. I think it all gets mushed together. Yeah, So I, I enjoy the hourly thing, even on larger contracts, simply because uh, when I'm doing like 9 to 5, so this last contract I was on was mostly a 9 to 5 job for example, but um, since I'm used to the, the flexibility of freelancing and startup life, uh, I still like to be hourly in case I have something come up. So if there's uh, a social networking event that I really want to go to, and it's at 1 p.m. I just say, you know, hey, I'm going to miss this, and then nobody feels slighted by the fact that I'm, you know, not in there from nine to five. I just bill less hours that day or whatever. So, um, so generally, I'm still working on an hourly basis, even though even if a contract is large, um, because I just tend to prefer. I think it's the most fair way of doing things.
0: Cool. Uh, I was about to say, you were also mentioning before we started recording. That you've been doing a lot of speaking lately is—is is that one of the ways that you um, network to bring in future business, future clients, or is the speaking more of a of a information exchange rather than a, a lead generation?
2: So, I mean, it's not um, it's not expressly lead generation, but I'm I'm sort of one of those people that uh, is accidentally self-promotional. So I started using my full name as a Twitter handle, for example, before I was even doing any of this freelance stuff or um, anything like that, just because I felt like it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of the same way, like I enjoy speaking because I enjoy public speaking. And the side effect of networking um, is nice because I enjoy meeting people as well. I'm very extroverted. Uh, and so that just happens naturally transition into lead generation. Um, so it's not something I'm explicitly going for, but it definitely doesn't hurt. I guess you could say, Just put it that way. Um, and yeah, so I'm I'm speaking at a, a multitude of mostly Ruby conferences in the fall. Although there's going to be one or two that's a little different. Um, the Twilio conference, for example, I am talking with them. It's not 100% for sure yet. We're trying to see if the schedules work out, but I might be uh, you know talking about that, for example. So that'll be a, a still programming related, but not um, Ruby specifically. And uh, I'm also, as I'm doing this English stuff, I actually am going to Englishy academic conferences too. So I was on a panel at one uh, in the spring, and I just found out a paper uh, got accepted for a conference in this in next spring, for example. So I'm sort of all over the place, everywhere. Travel's fun, so I like to do it.
0: <laughs> Congratulations! Um, well, it's a great thing that you can do it. Also, you know, I think a lot of folks would love to be traveling as much as they could. Uh, and apparently you've set yourself up in such a way that you, you can not only afford to do so, but you can take the time out of your regular work schedule to afford yourself the opportunities to go out and meet these these people and go to these places.
2: Um, yeah, I uh, talked about this with somebody recently that asked how I find the time, and basically what it boils down to is I, I decided uh, a long time ago that I would want to uh, work to live and not live to work, and so I've made several very conscious decisions about how to enable that, and I don't—I don't want to say lifestyle design because that has a whole lot of uh, Tim Ferrissy-related things that go along with it. But I definitely have some influence there, where like I don't have a car because it's too much of a monthly expense, and that ties me down to a particular location. I rent a house with a couple people because that's cheaper and it doesn't tie me down to Pittsburgh if I want to leave and go somewhere else for a while, or you know, things like that. I guess I try to specifically take flexibility above all else, um, and so that way I can do all these kinds of
0: things that's mm-hmm. a it's a pretty rare point of view i think i think a lot of uh, freelancers there's i think mike and i for sure have had this when you first start out freelancing you have so many uh pre-existing bills on a monthly basis that you were used to paying with a full-time job that you almost have to hit the ground running into the freelance world to make sure that you can still afford to keep living at the lifestyle um not the level but the 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 comfort and the familiarity you would have been used to with a full-time position yeah, it's, it's, and it's yeah.
1: sustaining a, uh, a level of comfort that it is, too. But everybody's is different, obviously. Yeah, and yeah. Steve,
0: Steve's level of comfort is, uh, ideal for his situation. Definitely.
2: definitely. Yeah, I had the luck of going, you know, sort of like dropping out of college to do a startup and then, you know, finishing it or whatever. But I've sort of always been in that mentality of, of like, you know, uh, living in a tiny place with a bunch of people and not having a lot of stuff and having a good time anyway. And so I've managed to just transition right into it without skipping all of that acquire lots of stuff step. And it's definitely helped um, for sure. Mm. So I could still be doing better, but I, uh, you know, I'm not like the, I only own 30 things and they fit in my book bag kind of person, but I'm almost there. But, uh, you know, I don't want to give up my desktop computer just by yet.
0: <laughs> so that's, that is how you're able to, uh, I, you were telling us before we even uh, booked this uh, interview how you're going to be taking off uh, as much time as you can here in the next few months to work on a lot of open source stuff, which to the best of my understanding is not necessarily a paying gig, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, so this is actually in the last couple of days gotten a lot more complicated. But basically, I really enjoy doing open source because, uh, well, for a lot of reasons, one of them being that uh, open source has saved me personally a lot of pain and time. And so if I can do five hours of work and save 100 other people five hours of work, I've, you know... um, saved tons of people time. Like my the output gained is much more than the the input that I put in. So uh so open source is what I really love to do. And the the problem is is that um sometimes that's difficult to get paid for. So uh with this last contract and some other work that I did, I managed to save up enough money that I could just take the next uh roughly six months. Before I saw my travel schedule it was definitely like until February, but I think now it's bumped back till uh December with the <laughs> yeah, uh going so many places. Um but like, I have that much money in the bank, and so I'm able to take off the time to, to work on those projects and, uh, you know, sort of make that happen. And so, again, that's like coming down to deliberate decisions. Like, I don't buy a lot of things that aren't plane tickets at this point because, you know, I have my laptop and I'm happy with it. And it's a couple years old, but whatever. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's all about budgeting properly and all those kinds of, uh, those kinds of things. So, so yeah, well, I-, I have some time off, but it looks like I'm actually going to be getting I don't want to jinx it, but I'm in some talks to actually get paid to do open source, um, nice. just straight up. So I might actually be, uh, I might be taking a job, even though I wasn't planning on doing it, because it won't be a job. It'll be mostly open source with a little bit of this teaching mentoring thing uh, on the side, basically. So, um, you know, whenever you're doing work that you would be doing work anyway, it's not really a job, right? <laughs> so that's why we're all Fair doing right. this creative work in the first place. Hopefully it's all stuff that we enjoy.
0: Well, I, loving your job is a big part of why people leave their jobs. So if you're freelancing and you hate it, you've made a very bad decision. Yeah. <laughs> did you know, like, so you said you were dropped out of college to uh, go and, and work uh, with a startup. Did you know all along that you wanted to be working in programming no matter what? Or ha- how did you, because uh, I mean, by and large, programmers either you know, live and die by their freelance projects or they get sucked into a conglomerate and never get heard from again uh yeah. how did you decide where you're going to make your stand there as a freelancer
2: so i uh i always knew that i wanted to be a programmer when i i first picked up a computer when i was seven and as soon as i as soon as i touched it i was like this is what i want to be doing all the time forever and uh my mom actually accused me of only wanting to go to grandma's house so i could play more games uh <laughs> but uh so i got a book on programming from my uncle because that was the stuff he was doing and so it's Uh, I've been programming for the vast majority of my life. I don't remember what it's like to not program. So I always knew that it was what I wanted to do, but I didn't really realize like growing up in Pittsburgh, um, I didn't know that doing things like startups and freelancing was something that I personally could do. Uh, I assumed that I would have to just go to college and get a job at some big giant megacorp and that would be how the only way that I could actually program. And so I just sort of, uh, resigned myself to that being what I wanted to do, because then I was, you know, focused on the details of programming and not really how it would happen. It's just, oh, that's how programmers get jobs. So sure. And then uh, once the, my like last couple years in college rolled around, that's when I started realizing that like, oh, it's not just people in California that start companies, or it's not just people, you know, on the internet that do this freelancing thing. Like that's something that I could do. And it, it seems really silly in retrospect, but it's so funny how you're largely limited by the things that you think and believe about yourself, not by what the actual situation is. So just sort of one day, whenever my, uh, you know, then business partner um, sort of said, hey, I'm going to do this company, and I want you to join me. that was like, whoa, wait, yeah, I guess, I guess I could actually do this, huh? And so um, I dropped out uh, with a couple, I only had a couple classes left, I was largely close to being done. But we had a situation where we were getting some funding. And so, you know, I decided to take it. And that sort of at that point, experiencing the startup lifestyle made me realize that that was what I wanted to do, uh, you know, forever. And uh, actually, I worked, I used to, the first technical job I ever got was at a startup. Um, so I had an internship in college at Libsyn, which hosts lots of podcasts. You podcasting people from Pittsburgh, especially, I'm sure, remember Libsyn and... Uh, so, Libsyn, which is now
0: a uh, wizard, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, wizard
2: now. Um, although it's, it's sort of funny because they, even if they got acquired, they still talk to themselves. Like, I would say, I'm a Libsyn employee, not I'm a wizard employee because they sort of functioned as like a business unit within wizard. So, um, so I sort of had that startup. That was where I got my first taste of like startup life essentially because, you know, it was like still six or eight programmers in a small room coding with each other all the time. So it felt that way, even though they had gotten acquired and it was at a bigger you know, company. Um, but yeah, that was just really what it was, is once I had the realization I could do it, I was like, okay, I'm going to make this happen. And then I did.
0: So, so it, it, was a, it was a realization rather than a plan.
2: Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, once I had the realization and I sort of was already kind of sort of doing it, you know, once once the startup stuff kicked off and I was in that for a long time, I said, okay, this is definitely what I want to be doing. And and when you're in a startup, you're always planning for it to be transient because most of them burn out anyway. And so even though we had some funding, you know, it's never... It's never 100% for sure until you have a liquidity event, so uh, I sort of had to start planning then, and that's sort of when I decided to do so. But I, I did fall into it at the beginning.
0: Uh, can you touch real quickly on the ups and downs or pros and cons of switching? Well, in your case, you didn't really switch from freelance to startup, but if, if there are freelancers who are getting the opportunity to get involved in a startup, do you have any tips in that regard?
2: Yeah. So the, the, the biggest thing, I guess, as far as tips goes, um, that I have to say is look into the whole lean startup movement and read everything that they're talking about and do everything that Eric Ries says. Um, it's, it's sort of funny. If if you're not familiar with the lean startup movements, this thing started this guy called Eric Ries who worked at this company called IMVU that he made. And basically it's a methodology for doing startups. That's like, it's like the popular thing at the moment, but it's popular for a reason. Um, the more stuff of lean that i actually did the better my startup was and the more that we got away from what lean says the worse my startup was so i'm a really big believer in in their methodology um and uh, i'm actually applying it to some of my projects that are not startups directly but that would be the biggest thing i guess secondly um make sure to read up a lot on a lot of the jargon decide if you want to do a startup or a lifestyle business so um you know there's there's a difference between a company that's going to get funding and blow it out and get huge and get acquired versus a company they're going to build up small over time and just, you know, work at that forever. So um, both of those paths are equally valid, but you have to know which one you're trying to go for because they require totally different tactics to make it happen. So, um, you know, and then if you do decide you're going to go for a startup startup, learn a lot about the way that the legal stuff works, you know, find the, a lawyer to explain it to you. Because um, when you start getting into working with other people and you have equity compensation and, the different ways you can structure your company. All those things are really complicated, but they're really, really important because they affect what happens in your future, you know, and you can't really, like, you can change them later, but then it requires lots of awkward discussions if you decide that it's not what you wanted to be doing, right? So um, I guess that would be what I would say about thinking about going into startups, for sure.
0: It's, it, it sounds like a lot of the stuff from uh, the lean startup mentality if you can apply it to your existing projects now, that's probably worth looking at for anybody who's in any sort of a business uh, mode to keep your eyes focused on the core principles rather than diverging too far from the norm, right?
2: Totally. So here's actually the example, I guess. I can get the I can get the plug in at the same time. So I wrote this blog post two weeks ago, called, or three weeks ago, I guess now, called Nobody Understands REST or HTTP. And if you're not a programmer, you don't understand what that means either. But it's a, it's a certain kind of technology that a lot of people, um, are following a version of it that's not actually the, the way that the creator intended. And they sort of are half following it. And so I was pointing out ways that, um, you know, what was different about this guy's envisionment of this technology versus the way people apply it. And it ended up getting 35,000 hits, which is a lot for me. Um, I don't know about you guys, you know, long time bloggers, but that's, that's big news where I come from. So, uh, I thought, hmm, I guess people were interested in this. And I got a bunch of emails, too, because I don't I don't accept comments on my blog, only emails. So um, after talking with people, when, when I heard uh, that people were interested in reading about it, and a lot of the questions I got were, you explained that really well, so could you explain how that applies to this? Um, I thought, hmm, maybe there's something here. So uh, one of the things that Lean advocates is collecting information about whether an idea is viable before you even do it. So... I I bought a URL and I bought uh, a theme off of Forest, and I got a MailChimp email uh, mailing list and I popped up a little web page that said, hey, I'm writing a book on this technical topic. Um, If you're interested, put in your email and I'll get back to you whenever it's going to be released. And um, then I wrote a second follow up blog post and submitted to the same kind of like story things. And uh, I got enough emails that I think it's justified to actually write the book. But instead of just going ahead and writing it and seeing what happens, I was able to see, is this idea even viable? You know, if only five people had signed up, then I would have just, you know, shut up about it, taken it down and never said anything and nobody would be the wiser. So that whole thing about collecting information, for example, is sort of how I'm applying Lean to uh, to other you know, things that I'm doing, I guess. Um, so, you know, you can sort of apply this to all sorts of projects, um, you know, with testing out ideas before they actually, uh, you know, before you work on them to see if it's worthwhile to work on them. So they can apply to anything.
0: That that makes sense. It's a very smart way to go about it. You only have so much time and so much resources you can apply to any project or any, you know, uh, group thereof. So even if you're passionate about something, if the built-in audience isn't there, you've got to figure out, is it worth the time it's going to take to build an audience to want what I have the time to make right now? Or is my time better spent? Pursuing projects for which there's actually a need.
2: Yeah, so that's that's sort of one example of how lean applies to other things, and and a little bit about it as a philosophy. It's really it's really interesting. You should go read everything about it right now because it's awesome. <laughs> all
0: right. Well, when we're not recording this, Steve, I'm yeah, going yeah, of
2: course. It. I just mean everybody listening who's you know tweeting or whatever and looking at the internet while listening because I'm sure that people do that.
0: That's all of us. Yes. Um, you had mentioned also the legality of startups can we talk real quick about legality of uh, your freelance and your contracts and so forth how do you go about structuring those do you have like a flat contract
2: so um, the people I, I have a contract that I like to use if somebody already doesn't have one but since lately I've been working with organizations that hire freelancers they sort of already have a contract that's written by their lawyers and so a lot of this stuff as far as programming goes is relatively boring and it's mostly the same. So generally, um, if somebody else has one that they want to use or their standard one for freelancers, it's much easier for me to look over it and see where it differs from what I have than for me to give them something new and then pay to have their lawyers look at it. So um, largely, I've used the contracts of the people that I've been working with, but that's also due to the audience. Um, you know. But I do have something available if they didn't but yeah, most of the stuff as far as freelance programming work is is relatively uh, similar. The only thing that's that's different in a lot of ways, um, I've seen a lot of people talk about this. Actually, today I was reading on a, on a blog somebody was talking about um, some people don't know the whole idea of getting paid a little up front and then having milestones instead of getting paid all at the end. And I think everybody that does freelancing has gotten burned by a client at one point or another. And so um, especially once you have a little bit of work established and you're sort of like in your groove, Getting uh, at least some of the money up front and then, you know, doing that is a much more fair and equitable way, I think, to make sure that everybody's getting what they need rather than the whole, you know, oh, you did all this work, but we decided we're going to go with something else. So how about we just don't pay you kind of thing that, um, of course, hasn't happened to me, but uh, my friends who do freelancing have heard this before in the past, um, you know, so uh, so that's the only thing I find that varies between programmers and, and uh, um people I've talked to and shared notes with about sort of the, the legality issues of doing freelance work as a programmer.
0: That makes sense. And it, it's it's interesting. You say that it hasn't happened to you, but it has happened to friends of yours. Do walk us through real quick, the psychology of the programming world as it pertains to freelancers, because I can't wrap my head around it from the outside. Are you all in competition for the same jobs or are you helping each other to get hired by the companies you've already had positive experiences with? How does that work? You,
2: you sort of got cut off at the end. Your last, uh, you last bit went away. Oh, sorry.
0: Just... I, w- I was saying, do you all try and um, uh, compete with each other for the same jobs? Or are you sort of trying to help each other get hired at the places you've already had a positive experience?
2: So, uh, for me at least anyway, it's much more cooperation than competition. But I'm also not, um, you know, like we said, I'm already sort of low bandwidth as far as what my needs actually are. So I usually try to hand people off to uh, to stuff. But the moment, the, right now, the market for programmers is such that, uh, there is a lot more work going around than there are people doing it. So it is very cooperative because, you know, um, even if you hear about a good opportunity, you might be in the middle of one and you have two or three in the pipeline. And so, you know, you end up giving it to somebody else who you know, referring people around simply because, like, there is, I, I get, I probably get one or two emails a week of people asking me to relocate to the Bay Area, for example. <laughs> um, because it's, it, at least in the programmers, like, world at the moment, it is very much, uh, a feast and not a famine, which sort of makes me feel bad when I hear news about, you know, the unemployment rate at large and the way that the economy is going in general, because it is not that way, at least for people that are doing Ruby web stuff. I mean, I know, I know three places in Pittsburgh that are hiring people for regular jobs, low and freelance stuff. Um, and usually they'll accept freelance in, in lieu of, you know, Uh, oh, we can't find anyone and it's been six months that we're looking, so if we can get some of your time, that would be great. So, you know, I've even made a couple of those things happen occasionally. Um, So, it is definitely a much more a a competition, or a, you're helping each other out, it's not a competition, largely. Um, And also just, too, because there's people specialized in different things, you know, if somebody wants a PHP programmer, I can do that, but I don't enjoy doing that, and so I'll hand it off to a friend of mine who I know enjoys doing that, because, you know, there's enough specialization that you know, there's there's work to go around. So,
0: yeah, I think that's an industry where specialization is so much more prevalent than generalization. Whereas, if you work in the media industry like Mike and I do, you almost feel compelled to know a bit about everything. So, whenever a job does come along, you say, "Oh, oh well, yeah, yeah, I, I I can do that." You know, uh, yeah. I I think streamlining your skill set in a certain way, uh, at least in your in your experience. Uh has made it much easier for you to figure out which jobs you do and don't want and to pursue the ones you know you're gonna be able to excel at.
2: Yeah, I mean I do know a lot of I also do have a fairly broad education on things too, so if you know if the Ruby job jobs dried up tomorrow, I would be able to do other work and I have you know examples of other work that I've done. But yeah, I think that there's enough of it that the specialization works out. So
0: yeah, it's that's, that's all right. And are you are you updating this uh this, uh, portfolio of yours on a regular basis, or do you not need to, uh, be, be doing that in a public way right now?
2: I, uh, I don't really have a resume. I, uh, <laughs> I had to give one for this last job I did because their HR department required one. And I sort of threw one together at the last second. And it was really funny because I realized after I put it together that only one of the things I put on there, and it was just a, a footnote, um, almost a reference was like a paid job. Everything else was all open source work that I've done or, Um, projects that I have, uh, websites that I run, you know, as a, as a, this is a personal project of mine. So I set up this website um, kind of thing. So uh, generally, because, because the Ruby community is relatively tight knit, and people know each other, and you know, I am a shameless self-promoter, people sort of know why they're hiring me, and I haven't really had the need to give anybody a resume directly. Um, So, you know, they can look at my open source contributions if they want to see what kind of code I write, basically. So my Twitter and my GitHub profile are my resume, basically. Yeah,
0: you know, Steve, there are times I, I think I want to step back and ask someone we're speaking to, if you could do it all again, what would you do differently? But I don't hear a whole lot of things you would be doing differently.
2: Not go I- to college. That would be the thing I would do differently. You know, the only thing college has gotten me, is, and this is funny, I'm going to go to college again. But like right. as far as the programming stuff goes, the only thing that got me was $70,000 worth of debt. Um, yeah. I, I have never gotten a job based on the fact that I was going to po- like that I got a degree. I, uh, haven't developed any connections with industry that I would have gotten. I met a lot of friends, um, that I, that I value highly, but that, that's really the only thing. Professionally, I gained absolutely nothing out of going to college. Um, so.
0: Do, do you believe that is, is a pro- is the a byproduct of the programming industry specifically, or is that just a, a, your take on the general state of higher education right now?
2: I think it's, so I, I don't really know for sure because I don't know other industries as well, but I feel like it's largely a symptom of, of the way that higher education works. I've I read a, one study that said that this is the first time where college has not made sense um, in the sense that the increased amount of money you get for going to college does not outweigh the um, money that you pay. However, there's certain industries and situations where you pretty much have to get a college degree. So, like, Mm -hmm. I've always said that I felt lucky as a programmer because if I want to program, I can pick up a computer. But, you know, if I wanted to be an astronaut or if I wanted to be a doctor, even, I would have to go to school and I would have to do all those things. And so in certain situations, you're definitely required to. But for anybody that's doing, like, freelance work, I think, in our sort of, like, creative areas, um, you know if you're if you're a programmer then do a bunch of open source work start blogging and meeting people and you will get work if you're uh you know if you want to get into media then you should have a million zillion twitter followers and you should be helping promote other people's projects and you can sort of like do what it is that your job will be and people will want to have you um you know do that for them professionally so uh i think that if you're good that there's no reason to pay for college if you want to just you know get a job at a megacorp uh, then going to college might be a good thing because that's sort of what they grade those things on but um, I find that the pay is worse the hours are longer, you're underappreciated and you could be downsized at any minute so, you know, like it didn't make a whole lot of sense for me but that's the only thing that I would really, I guess, do differently is not do programming I actually might have considered going to college anyway but for something like philosophy instead because then I would have learned something about the world as opposed to programming where I felt like I didn't really learn anything
1: it's an interesting thing that Justin, I, you, both Justin and I have. Uh, well, I have, are, are various levels at from the Art Institute. Uh, oh. Justin, do you feel like you you got a job because you went to the Art Institute? Because I, it, I know I'm doing stuff quite different from uh, what I learned there, so it's not even you know applicable anymore for me.
0: No, I. Th- if you looked at it strictly on paper. Technically, my first job out of college was the result of me having gone to that school because the person who was hiring at that job was specifically looking for somebody who did go to that school. Exactly. So,
1: yeah. And the only reason I got a job there was because I had a friend and, and they mm-hmm. got him through something. So connections, it worked out, but not right. But not. But, oh, you went you got bachelors in this and this. Who cares? You know. You,
0: yeah. No, it wasn't the knowledge. Even, in fact, I tell yeah. people my my degree is in computer animation, and I have not animated a single thing for money in my life. So. Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, but the connections are the big thing, and yeah. getting back to people, and you know, being active on Twitter, and like genuinely caring about other people and their well being helps a lot because you never know when somebody can help you later. And you know, I did meet my co founder in college, like, and most of my best friends right now I met in college. So. You know, I'm not, it's not necessarily totally worthless, but so, it is expensive and getting more so, so. So
1: so so it's really kind of it's kind of like buying into being part of a, a creative community and connecting uh, networking. perhaps. Yeah. And like as you know
2: social networking are. becomes more and more popular, that's sort of eating away, at, mm-hmm. you know, that used to be the only place to find people. And now, you know, it's not so.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, we have the, the case where uh, ah, some rich guy is, is going around and asking all the brightest students to drop out of college to do a startup with him or something like that.
0: There's a lot of that going on right now in the in the self-made communities of people saying, I didn't need college, and now I'm not going to send my kids to college. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would not be surprised if this becomes the generation where homeschooling and other forms of alternative education become the norm.
2: Peter Thiel is one of the guys who's a big name is doing this. He's one of the original founder, or, uh, founders of PayPal.
0: Yeah. And mm-hmm.
2: uh, he's giving kids $125,000 to not go to college. Um, you can like apply. It's like 10 kids a year or something that he's giving some sort of uh, scholarship to, um, basically. And it's like you have to start a company instead of going to college, but you apply for it or whatever.
0: But it makes sense. I mean, it forces you to think about life in a much more practical, hands-on, you know, resource-driven point of view much earlier in your life than going to college and just trying to figure out how do you work the system to get the A's, and then immediately forget the knowledge that you just acquired because you're on the, the pursuit of the next A?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, definitely, yeah. The school we went to—how many people are that graduate from the art school are doing anything even remotely what they went for?
0: I'm sure that I mean, it's least like very, that for every very, for every yeah. uh, educational facility across the country, though. Yeah, like yeah. you go yeah. in with such uh, specified expectations at the age of 18 because you're told you need to know what you want to do with your life by the age of 18, which is maybe except for Steve Klabnick, not the usual thing that people know at that point. And, <laughs> and then you and, go to college. You know, I mean,
2: I knew I wanted to program, but I didn't know I was into teaching, and I didn't know that that was sort of mm-hmm. what I wanted to do or that I would be doing open source even. So, so yeah, even even my stuff has changed, even though I did know it was sort of generally the same.
0: If the main thing that we can all agree that we took away from college was the social aspect and learning how to, um, you know, play well with others, uh, it is an expensive lesson to have to teach yourself at that point. Um, when Steve, you say that social might be replacing some of that, I agree with it. But the one thing that I guess college forces people to do that social doesn't is put you in physical proximity to each other and force you to go on sort of a uh, you know life, a a, a a a real life, real time experience together, yeah, and totally. you can either gain or lose appreciation for people based on the time you spend with them in college. Whereas if you're just only ever seeing them in the context of a digital or an online communication, you only see what you choose to see or what you want to see. So if we can replace that, you know, uh, all in the same boat together aspect of college with something online, I think that would be useful. But until we can do that, that's the one sort of uh, un- unreplicatable aspect of college I think is going to be difficult to uh, work around.
1: That that kind of goes to uh, recently we started a podcast uh, with with one of my clients where we were discussing uh, the noise of technology uh, that should be up here within a month, um and, and and you know how much are we uh you know using Twitter for our communities and and Skype and everything for meetings but we're not talking to our neighbors and I and I think a lot of that can be applied to the college as well.
0: So, well, we, we've turned this from a coding and freelance show into a rant about higher education so that means, Mike, it's probably time to wrap us up
1: <laughs> yes, yes, definitely uh, Steve, can you tell us oh, anything you want to plug this is the time to do it where, where do any people need to go to find out more about your world?
2: yeah, so if you want to find out anything about me in general, my stuff, steveklavnik.com is where it's all at and I tweet lots of crazy stuff from uh, at Steve Klavnik, code and politics and all sorts of you know fighting with Justin Kanacki all sorts of great stuff although we haven't had one of those in a long time so we haven't uh, although i
0: did just listen to the this american life uh patent lawsuit episode you and i could have a field day with that yeah yeah
2: yeah, totally i'm sure but the only other thing i guess i'd like to plug is like i said i am writing a book so if you are a programmer uh you can follow at get some rest book uh on twitter uh or get some re.st so that's the title of the book get some rest and uh if you know what rest is, and you wonder why I say that you don't actually know what it is, then you should you should check it out. So um, that's the only other thing I guess that I'm that I'm doing that like plug.
1: So it's not for me uh, trying to figure out how to get eight hours of sleep while I'm freelancing.
0: No, eight not hours. that at
1: all. Okay, but uh, that's I should write that as a sequel.
0: Should <laughs> <Sure. laughs> please please call it Mo Rest.
2: <laughs> Mo Rest, Mo Problems, or something. Uh, yeah, the opposite, yeah. I guess. But anyway,
1: <laughs>
2: fantastic. Okay. Oh,
1: Justin, did you have something there?
0: Do I have anything to add, subtract? No, I think Steve's covered a lot of great ground today. I think I've learned things that I wasn't expecting to learn from this conversation, which is always awesome.
1: We, we should start a, what did you learn from this interview like we do on the wrestling show?
0: <laughs> Seriously, I, know, I come in with expectations of what I think I might get out of a certain conversation. Mm-hmm. And uh, nine times out of ten, my mind is blown anyway. So, well done, Steve. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thanks. It's been
1: fun. thanks a lot, Steve for joining us again and guys, if you wanna chime in on this conversation, your thoughts about higher education or whatever else we talked about today, uh please chime in. We're uh at freelance four number four real at uh Twitter. Um freelance for real at sorgatronmedia.com. Freelanceforreal.com is the website. And uh you can join us live here every Tuesday, four p.m. Eastern at live.sorgatronmedia.com. You can ask questions of our guests and everything. Um and you know, look us up on iTunes, on Mediafly, subscribe to us, rate us, and uh and tell your friends, tell your freelance friends, people that might be uh, uh trying to get into this stuff and trying to figure out where to start. That's kind of why we're here, you know, uh to 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 help with that. So uh, so for this, I'm Mike. For Justin and Steve, we'll see you guys next week. Freelance for real. Take back your freedom!